Good morning. Usually when I am preaching at home, my sermons take between 30 minutes and 3 hours. <laughs> so I hope that you stay expectant. No, it's, uh, I was thinking about it this morning and I thought, no, this is one of the hardest things to ask an African priest to preach for 20 minutes. But let's see how this goes. Um, I have chosen to title my sermon this morning, Let's Not Talk About Love. And that's funny because um, many novels have been written about love, many books have been written, um, movies acted. And if anything, love is the most talked about thing in this world. We all would like to hear a good love story or watch a good love-themed movie with a beautiful ending that makes us weep at the end, or better still, receive a long, passionate love letter from our loved ones. The truth is, we don't really have to go out of our way to hear a love story. The grand biblical story, the story of our salvation, is and has always been about love, about the love of a God who loves us unconditionally, enough to send his son to die for us on the cross. He does not just declare that he loves us, he pursues us relentlessly, even when we are playing hard to get. This morning I am reminded of the time I and my wife Sophie were dating. We had just met and she moved to Nairobi, eight hours away from the city where I was working and so the only way we had to communicate to one another was writing letters. And so every single week, I would write a letter, and she would write one back. And I would always be waiting to see and, and re receive a letter from her. And so every, mo every week, we would send each other letters back and forth. And we kept those letters. And years after we got married, every single year, we take time and clean up our house and get rid of stuff we do not need. And so many times I have come across the letters we wrote to each other. And I find the letters I wrote to her expressing my love for her. And I, write, I read through the letters and I wonder, boy, did I write that? Because the words are so sweet. Many years down the line, the words still remain as sweet as they were. Same as the letters she wrote to me. And I am excited about reading those letters. And in some way, the word of God to us is a love letter. He is declaring his love to us and saying, I love you with all my heart. I have never read a more passionate letter. I have never read a more powerful letter that breaks me down. And everything that is me just disappears and God takes control over my, of my life. And so... This morning, we have an opportunity, like every other day, to listen to this love letter, the scriptures which he desires that would be used to draw us to him and that we would be delighted, not just to hear these words and to be careful to obey them. This morning in the gospel, we read about Jesus in one of the series of debates with the Jewish authorities who, for the most part, are looking not to establish what is in the law, but to trick him into saying something wrong so that they would find a reason 
to crucify him. You know, it's strange that the lawyer is the one who would be asking the question. Because the lawyer, the word translated from Greek means a scribe. Or in Hebrew, rabbi, meaning a teacher or one learned in the religious law. And so why would someone learned in the religious law be asking questions about the law if it were not to draw Jesus Christ into this debate of which is the least commandment and which is the smallest commandment? And in some way, I think they needed to hear the answer that Jesus gave to them because there were 613 commandments. 365 were negative commandments and 248 were positive commandments. That is a lot of commandments to live by. And so in verse 36, the lawyer asks, Master, which is the great commandment? And Jesus responds by pointing to Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 5 and Leviticus 19.18. And he combines two verses of scripture into what we commonly refer to as the summary of the law exemplifying a favorite Jewish method of teaching. It is therefore probable that Jesus is not the first to, be, to have summed up the law in this manner. It seems that at this point, at least Jesus is on the same page as the Pharisees, that the difference is that Jesus deals with the prescriptions of the law in a way that interprets the spirits of God's word and as set forth in scripture. So it is not just about the letter of the word, but the spirit of that law that has been given to them. And Jesus says to the lawyer, thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And secondly, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Notice that Jesus, although asked for one great commandment, answers with two, which are, inseparable. This parallels the two halves of the Decalogue. The one half that concerns the love of God and the other half that concerns the love for neighbor and which by themselves are incomplete. Note also that when Jesus refers to the second commandment, he says, a second is like it. The mention here, ladies and gentlemen, is pure in numerical. That is the second in the order given, but not second in importance. One is no way less important than the other. Although Matthew does not clarify how the two commandments to love relate to one another, theologians throughout the centuries have done well to make up for the gap. Theodoret of Syrahats argued that to love God is to love our neighbor, the one is the foundation of and the inspiration of the other. Martin Luther argued that while our neighbor is needy, God needs nothing. So true service of God must always be the sake, for the sake of the neighbor. He says, and I quote, even the preaching of his glory and our praising him takes place on earth in order that our neighbor may be converted and brought to God thereby. There is therefore a sense in which, according to Matthew, God is in others. Especially striking is Matthew 25, 31 through 46, where Jesus, the functional presence of God, is the direct recipient of acts of love done to others. 
And he declares at the end in verse 45, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. So let's take a moment and reflect on what it means to love God and neighbor. And I want us to perhaps do it in three questions. Question number one, how can we love God with all our heart, soul, and mind? You see, the love of God is not a fleshly love. It is not an attitude or affection for family, friends, or even the material things of this world. It is not the lovey-dovey feeling we experience or the warm, fuzzy feeling we, we have when we think about the people we love or spending time with them. In fact, as the example of Jesus shows, it is a way of life. The three faculties, the heart, the soul, and mind represent an entire person and so demand for a total allegiance. And so we ought to love God with everything we are and everything we have. The first and foundational commandment and which Jesus refers to in the Shema is, you shall have no other gods before me. With this commandment, God makes it clear that his people are to serve him only, the one true God. He sees our relationship with him much like a marriage relationship. That is why we, the church, are called the bride of Christ. And so it is not just enough to stand at the altar during a marriage or wedding ceremony and declare that I will love you all my life. If either spouse does not forsake all others, it usually spells destruction for that marriage. There is only one God, the one who has revealed himself to us through Christ and is calling us into a relationship with him. Allow me to ask, have you allowed other gods into your life? Where are your affections? Where do you spend your time, your energy, your money? What do you long for? What are you living for? We are told in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 through 3, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not earthly things, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Unfortunately, we spend the best of our years, our time, our energy, our money in pursuing temporal dead things that have no capacity to bring life at all, instead of focusing on him who is the way, the truth, and the life. A story is told of a young Christian disciple and a mature elderly Christian. And this young man had heard that the mature Christian had been faithful and steadfast in his faith. So he went on a mission to discover what made this elderly Christian be rooted in his faith. And so he sat with him and asked, you know, a lot of people are falling out of the way. What is the secret behind your faithfulness? And the old man said to him, one day I was sitting in, on my porch and my dog was beside me and all of a sudden a rabbit came out of the bush and was running and my dog started pursuing the rabbit and it was barking and very soon all the dogs 
because they had the backing, joined my dog in pursuing this rabbit. And the rabbit went into thickets and through bushes, and the dogs kept on pursuing. But then shortly after, the dogs started falling out. All the dogs fell out and went back into their homes, except my dog. And he said, that is my secret. And so the young man asked and wondered, I, I don't understand. And he said, the secret is that the dog had seen the rabbit. And so the dog was chasing after a rabbit he had seen. And so ladies and gentlemen, we must come to the point where we see the Lord and have an experience of him for us to continually and steadfast follow after him. Otherwise, we will fall out like the other dogs. The reason why this dog was steadfast is because he had seen the rabbit and the rest had not seen it. And so we have an opportunity to pursue God with all our heart and all that is within us. How can we, who have encountered Christ, do anything else but follow and love him with all our heart, our soul, and our mind. For it is only when we have encountered him that we can have the commitment to continue and chase like that one dog. We are made to love and to worship God. A partial devotion to him leads us into a divided life. In fact, psychologists contend that a cleavage in personality is tragic and mental health under threat unless and our mental health is under stress unless that cleft is healed. Some people worship God with their emotions and not their thoughts. They dare not subject the mysteries of God into a mental pondering. Some people worship God on Sundays but forget to worship him during the workday week. They will not bring Christ into their workplace. Some love him in the church and their homes but ignore him on the road when they drive. They have stickers that say they are Christians, but they are the first to go into a road rage and curse and show fingers on the road. <laughs> you know what I think? People like that suffer from spiritual schizophrenia. When we employ a dichotomy between what we do in church and other areas of our lives, it only serves to create a fertile ground for skepticism towards the gospel. It is a threat against our neighbor. You know, in, in my culture, like Gary would like to have me say, we bury our dead in our homesteads. And so I went to one of these burial, and you know, before the burial day itself, we have a night vigil. And the grave is dug, and people sing songs of praise and worship, and the sermons are preached throughout the night. And so I went to one of those. And so people were taking turn in preaching, and one gentleman came up to preach. And as usual, in our culture, we get people excited. We get people excited about hearing the word of God, and he shouted, praise the Lord, which you know, makes me feel strange because I've been preaching for close to 10 minutes and I have not had an amen. amen. And so this man steps forward and says, praise the Lord and gets the whole crowd excited. But then 
But then there were young men who were probably drunk, who were digging the graves a little way off, who heard him say, praise the Lord. And they responded when everyone else was saying, amen. The young men out there were responding, how can you praise the Lord and beat up on your wife? And it shocked him. But everyone ignored those young men. But they had a point. Because sometimes the message that we preach is not congruent with the way we live our lives. And therefore, it weakens the message of the gospel. Question number two. How do we love our neighbor with all our heart, soul, and mind? First John chapter 4. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. So we must love our neighbors. We first loved our God. The love must be rooted in our love for God. For human love, even at its best, is polluted by prejudice, selfishness, ambition, and ego. It stands against the background of what God has done for us in Christ. Love rooted in God rescues social action or social service from materialism. For those serving and those being served are all but children of God. The love that shapes a neighbor must itself be shaped by the love of God. John Wesley was once asked about the secret of his ministry, and he responded by saying, I ask God to put me on fire, and then I let, what, I let people watch me burn. My prayer for you and I this morning is that God will put us on fire, and that the world will see us burning with passion for the Lord. Hallelujah. If we love the Lord, we will love those who he loves. Go where he wants us to go and do as he bids us. It will bother us that there are people who have not been reached with the gospel. That there are 25,000 children who die daily for lack of clean water. There are people who are dying of disease all around the world. And if we cannot do anything about it, may our hearts be moved into prayer. Question number three. The first two questions beg the third question, which is, how then should we love ourselves? As we would deeply wish our neighbors to love us, we must try to find or love ourselves as God has loved us in Christ. According to Arthur McGill in his book, Death and Life, the American Theology, our fear of need, loss, failure, and diminishment has caused us to configure our identities in a particular way. In other words, we allow ourselves to be defined by what we possess, how we look, our material possessions, status, influence, and reputation. We therefore are constantly acting suspiciously and aggressively towards anything that threatens our position, our possession, our reputation, and the way we look. The awareness of being a child of God sort of stabilizes our ego 
and gives us the courage and fearlessness and the power that we need to live our life. For God has not given us the spirit of fear and timidity, but the spirit of power, love, and of a sound mind. The idea of kenosis in Philippians chapter 2 provides us with a biblical answer as to how we should love ourselves, not by the standards of the world or the pressures by which they subject us to, but identifying that we are children of God, regardless of what we do or do not have, regardless of what other people may think about us. Our first and initial identity is that we are children of God. So Paul points to the kenotic identity of Jesus Christ as the solution to the problems of love in the Philippian church. The Christians in Philippi were operating out of an identity of possession. Their desire and their impulse was to hold on to status, influence, esteem, reputation, and power. And that became their route to self-definition, self-esteem, personhood, and identity. But you know what? Jesus emptied himself for the sake of others. Because he did not fear dispossession or loss, he could endure the cultural stigma of being nothing and having nothing. He became poor that we might become rich. This is the engine that empowered Jesus to have a life of sacrificial love that looks to the interests of others. So may we be moved to love others. May we have the mind of Jesus Christ so that we are not just able to love ourselves in ways that glorify the Lord, that we might also be able to empty ourselves for the sake of others, whether they live downtown, whether they live down the street in Germantown, in Honduras, or in Marera, the small village I come from in Kisumu. The gospel demands that the love we profess must be declared in the multiplicity of our actions, which when informed by love, provides it with a concrete presence in the world. In conclusion, I know many of you are waiting to hear that. We cannot please God by merely obeying the law. It is too hard a thing to do. Jesus does more than citing the law. The appeal of Jesus is not to the letter of an ancient law. And so Jesus' words fulfill the law and the prophets in this way. That our religious duties are to be performed not for human approval, but they should grow out of an intimate relationship with the Heavenly Father. Out of love and devoted service to Him. And the neighbor is to be loved and treated as one loves and treats him or herself. So, beloved of the Lord, let us not just talk about love. Let us go forth and love as Christ has commanded us to. Kwa jina la baba, na mwana, na roo mtakatifu, amina.